0: Wow, it's great to be up here with you guys uh, this weekend, and uh, this is a real treat for me, and uh, and it's a privilege and an honor. Um, This is going to be a weekend, I think, that hopefully you'll be able to uh, really enjoy uh, as we're going to be studying through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, this has been something that's been on my heart for a while to be able to teach And especially in a context like this uh, at a retreat. And so I'm really excited about this. Um, It's perhaps one of the most underestimated books on wisdom that we have in the Bible. Okay, that's popping up there. And I think the insights that we glean from this book are numerous. They are deep and often misunderstood even by some of the most intelligent commentators and scholars, you know, the nerdy people, right, that study these things. And yet the impact of this book is critical for our culture. And specifically, it's critical for you, I think, at your age specifically. In fact, one might argue that the wisdom in this book is perhaps more important for you than for any other generation because you are the next generation that will lead the church and will lead the world. We need wise young men and young women. And we need people who know how to think rightly, truthfully, and biblically about the world around them. We need young men and women who can engage the current cultural arguments and expose the flaws in the modern worldly arguments and demonstrate with reason and insight that the word of God has the only true answers for life. And you are those men and women. You are those men and women. You may not feel like that, but you are. I remember years ago when I was in middle school, This is funny because we were literally just talking about this at dinner. I had a really, really good math teacher. Uh, I hated math up until that eighth grade year, in fact. And then I had Mr. Brodeur. Mr. Brodeur. He was clever. He was good with kids. He made math captivating. And it was his teaching that actually encouraged me to continue on in math studies. And I actually became a math major for about half of my time in college. And so Mr. Berdure was really good at his job. He was also very blunt and straightforward. No one crossed him. He's that kind of a guy. No one would cross him because you would get punished, appropriately so, and probably made fun of too, because he was really funny. And yet our class had made a reputation for themselves of being disorderly, distracted, difficult for Mr. Berdure especially at the start of class, and everyone was like, ah, they're going crazy, you know, trying to get them all calmed down for the lesson to start. And I remember one day, our algebra class was extra loud and noisy before the start of the lecture, and everyone was, you know, there's chaos and there's chatting, and the time for class came, and it went, and everyone was continuing to chat and talk, and Mr. Brodeur just sat at his desk in the front corner of the room, just stared at us quietly, not a single word. And he wore this stoic face, a little unreadable. But there was this interesting gleam in his eye and maybe a slight smirk on his face. This was different than his more normal tactic, right? To calm us down with, you know, speaking over us, getting louder than us. I knew something was up and I knew something good was about ready to happen, And slowly it dawned on the students in the room that the start of class had already come and gone. And Mr. Brodeur was not teaching yet. In fact, he had not said anything to anyone since he had entered the room and he was just staring at everyone. And he even had his feet up on his desk, which was hilarious. And you could hear the chatter slowly die off row by row as people began to realize that they were uselessly taking precious class time away from Mr. Brodeur And finally, the last little bit of chatter stopped, and everyone sat on the edge of their seats waiting to hear what Mr. Brodeur would say. And he didn't speak right away. There was this unsettling pause that occupied the room that I'm sure made some students quite unsettled and uncomfortable. And then I'll never forget what Mr. Brodeur finally said. He said, Did you know? California has the worst math test scores in the United States. And he got this big smile on his face. That's you guys. (laughs) (laughs) That sarcasm was perfect for the moment. All of us needed to hear that. That was the kind of class that we were. Our lack of care for math was evident all year long. And it was palpable that day. It was very obvious. (laughs) We were careless and not interested in what we should have been interested there. We deserved it. We had a reputation for wasting precious time from our teacher. And if our classroom was indicative of the California test scores, then we know why. You also can't waste time. Like that. You can't waste time. Today's the day where you need to stop wasting time in your life if you are wasting time where it's too easy to get dedicated to frivolous things frivolous pursuits your generation is crumbling around you do you see it your your generation is crumbling around you more than any other generation that has for you there is no more room for error You need to use the moments of your young life now to dedicate your sharp and clear minds to know the word of God and to live the word of God. There is no more room for error. Even your generation in our Christian circles, the young men and women who call themselves Christians are almost entirely naive, emotionally unstable, unreasonable. Rebellious, often very lazy, careless, more than we know, are even suicidal, and are marked generally by just foolishness. They invest time in frivolous activities that don't matter, they have a tenacious will, and they act very self centered. And we simply do not have a young generation that can reason through the Bible and think through the Bible. Most Christian families and churches today are not training their young men and young women to think through the scriptures. Now, many of you have wonderful parents who know and love the scriptures. And you have a church full of leaders who are clarifying the word of God for you better than perhaps most any church does. Yet, I urge you to really devote your life to the study of the word of God and to its wisdom. It doesn't matter what occupation you end up taking when you're older. Whether you're a police officer or a bank teller or a business entrepreneur or perhaps an accountant, or some of you I know are wanting to be pastors, or a medical doctor or a nurse, a stay-at-home mom, or a physical therapist, school teacher, whatever you become, you can and you must dedicate your life to the study of the scriptures. That's why you need this book that we're going to talk about this weekend. The book is Ecclesiastes. I just mentioned that. Don't underestimate this book. This book is very clever. It's a very clever book. It's perhaps deeper and wiser than you may know. And you're so well taught, and it's unlikely that you've heard sermons like this, but often in our Christian circles, Ecclesiastes is taught as a depressing, pessimistic book. Have you ever heard of the Bible Project? The Bible Project. Let me make sure that's actually working. Hey, it actually worked. Great. The Bible Project has some really good content, some beautiful videos that they've put together to explain not only books of the Bible but theological concepts and so forth. Uh, but be wary of the Bible Project. Some of their content is excellent. It's insightful. It's clarifying. But there are some videos that significantly distort. Scripture and Ecclesiastes is one of those. They convey the author of Ecclesiastes, whoever he is, as some man who smokes a pipe, pondering life in a dark room with a dismal, a a dismal and ominous tone. You can kind of see, well, you can barely see it up there, but there it is. Everything's bad in that perspective of Ecclesiastes, everything's vain, everything's empty. And whoever they think wrote Ecclesiastes is viewed by them to be fatalistic. Let us eat, let us drink, for tomorrow we die. And honestly, I think at first glance, when you're reading Ecclesiastes for the first time, you might come away with that idea, thinking that's where Solomon lands. Let us eat, let us drink, for tomorrow we die. And that's it. How very often in Ecclesiastes, Solomon urges us, eat, drink, enjoy your labor, because in the end, it's all meaningless. The book is just filled with that message, it seems. But if you come away from the book with that mindset, then you missed the point. You missed the point. Ecclesiastes is not pessimism. It's not pessimism. It's like negativity. That's what pessimism means. Negativity. Ecclesiastes is optimism. Optimism. Mixed with realism. Optimism mixed with realism. Or you could put it this way. Joy mixed with truth. Joy mixed with truth. In other words, Solomon is giving you and me a way to live life with joy in the middle of troubling circumstances. I think we want to hear messages like that, right? I think many of you need to hear that. You need to hear about how to live joyfully in the middle of difficult circumstances. I'm not under the assumption that COVID wasn't difficult and confusing for you a couple years ago. Even though you, as many of you are in solid homes, your parents helped you think that through carefully. But it makes it a little scary to see where the world's going. You can sense it in society around you. The world is like a train that is moving faster and faster. And you know about trains that if it goes too fast and it reaches a turn, it begins to tip and fall. That's what the world feels like it's doing right now. The accelerating momentum means that it can't handle the turn. And it's close to falling off the rails. That's the way that the world feels like it's going right now. The question is, for us, is how do we live life wisely and joyfully as we watch the world falling off the rails? That's what Ecclesiastes is all about. Now, with the time that we have left this evening, I want to give you a survey of what we're going to talk about. Tonight, I'm only going to give you just an introduction to the book. That's it. That's all we're going to do. You might be like, wow, that's a whole sermon just dedicated to the introduction of a book. Is that really necessary? But you must, you must not underestimate the background of this book to get the fullest meaning out of it. And so tonight, you will hopefully see a lot better why Ecclesiastes was written. Why? Why was it even written to begin with? And why is it so important for your life, especially at your age? Then over the next 3 sessions that we have together, we're going to cover what's in the book itself. So tomorrow morning, we're going to cover chapters 1 through 2 in the second session. And you're like, "Wait a minute. So we're going to be at Sunday and we will have only gone through two chapters so far of Ecclesiastes." Yes. But then, and Sunday morning, we're going to be able to get through the middle of chapter 7, so we'll go through from chapter 3 to all the way to the middle of chapter 7 and then On Sunday evening, we'll cover the rest of chapter seven and then the rest of the book and then bring it all together. So with the time that we have tonight, I simply want to just introduce Ecclesiastes to you and its author. And I want to break this down into some diagnostic questions, diagnostic questions, as I think that may be one of the easiest way for you to think about the setting of Ecclesiastes. In fact... Diagnostic questions are a great way to think about any book and kind of like its background and introduction and what it's all about. And you're like, wait a minute, what do you mean by diagnostic questions? What are diagnostic questions? Well, diagnostic questions are basically the who, the when, the where, the why, and the how. The who, the where, the when, the why, and the how. That's basically our outline for tonight. That's what we're going to talk about. And first we will cover the who. That's the authorship. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? And then, only once we've established the who, can we better assess the when of the book. When was this book written? Like does this really matter to know what the when is? Yes, it really does. You'll see why. Then can we can best understand after those two, the where. The where. Where was this book written? And what was taking place at that time when he wrote the book? And then we'll talk about the why. The why. Given who the author is, the time, and the place, the question then is, why did he write this book? What's the big point? And by the way, the why of a book is the really fun part. If you can explain exactly why a writer of Scripture wrote the book that he wrote, then you've unlocked the code for the book. I'm going to be bringing up a lot of Lord of the Rings illustrations throughout this series, so brace yourselves. Oh, good, I have some fans. Excellent. And I do not apologize for doing this. I will be going off the movies because they're a little bit more near and dear to most of us here, although I know what's going to happen. I'm going to say something, and then someone's going to come up to me afterwards and say, that's not exactly what happened in the book. (laughs) And I commend you for doing that. Please do that. I don't mind that at all. I love knowing that. I'm just telling you up front. I'm going off of the movies, so sue me, okay? But you know The Doors of Doreen, the first film, yes? The Fellowship of the Ring an impenetrable rock cliff. Well, I'm getting some yeses and amens out there. This is good. <laughs> wow. All right. This is good. It's an impenetrable rock cliff with a magical door that you enter through. They can't be unlocked unless you know the password. As the instructions say very clearly on the door, speak, friend, and enter. Yeah? You guys remember that? <laughs> You're like, I haven't seen it. You need to watch it. <laughs> but no one knows what the password is in the group. Until Frodo, the main character, cleverly realizes that it's not just instructions for a password. It's a a riddle. Good. It's a riddle, a play on words. The answer is actually in the instructions itself. Speak friend and enter. And since the instructions were written in the Elvish language, Frodo asks what the Elvish word for friend was. And then after Gandalf the wizard mutters it, the door opens. Understanding the why of a book in scripture is like solving a riddle like that. You find the why and you've solved the puzzle. You find the why you open the door to the rest of the book. You have to understand why he wrote this book. Bible books are uninteresting when you don't understand the why. Sermons actually are boring when you don't understand the why. Commentaries collect dust on the shelves when You don't understand the why from from those commentaries. You need to understand the why of Ecclesiastes, and we will get there very soon tonight. So that's the why. And then finally, we're going to discuss the how. The how. The how, I think, can be underrated at times. Uh, It involves how the author communicates in the book. What features did he use? Uh, How is the book structured and outlined? How does he outline the book? Like, oh, outlines. I can't stand outlines. I do those in school all the time. No, no, outlines are really important in Scripture, and they're actually a lot of fun when you actually get to know how it contributes to the big picture and why. That's critical because the literary features in the outline affect how we understand the book, what emphasis we put on different passages. And so we need to cover all of these diagnostic questions. That's the who, the when, the where, the why, and the how, and it will make sense, I think, in that order. Now, there's one more common diagnostic question. You might be, well, you're probably thinking of a lot of them, like how many, which, you know, those don't matter, okay? (laughs) But there is one more that does matter, I think, and it's the what, the what. And you're like, where's the what on the screen? I don't see the what. Well, the thing is, is the what is the content of the book. So we're going to be covering the what in the next three sermons after we cover these five questions tonight. Well, are you ready? You ready to jump into Ecclesiastes? Okay. All right. It's time for us to talk in depth about this beautiful book. Let's begin. Okay. Who? Who? Who wrote the book? Who wrote the book? Well, uh, that's an easy answer. Solomon, right? Solomon wrote the book. You can move on in the, to the next point, Jay. You don't need to cover that one. I got it. I believe it. And to be fair, I don't think any of you are going to disagree with me on this. I think it's an easy sell. Uh, We kind of all just assume Solomon wrote it. I mean, who else? And what's the big deal about it? Well, that's actually technically not what the book says. That's what's interesting. And nevertheless, I am not going to argue with you on this. I totally believe Solomon wrote it. Uh, But it is interesting to know that he doesn't mention himself specifically by name. Turn your Bibles over to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's in the middle of your Bible. You'll probably, if you pop your Bible open in the middle, you'll probably land on Psalms. Turn to the right, two books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, yeah? Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And I want you to look with me at chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The words of Kohelet. Like My Bible doesn't say that. Don't worry. Just say it. The words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Israel. Or excuse me, in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Question is, who's Kohelet? What are you saying? Why are you saying Kohelet, Jay? That's the Hebrew word that's used there. Your Bible probably says something like the preacher, the gatherer. The word, the most basic meaning of this word, Kohelet, is gatherer. In other words, Sky is describing himself as someone who gathers people. He assembles them into a place so he can speak to them. Like a message or a sermon. And so that's why some call him the preacher. It's just but the, the, the root idea is someone who gathers to speak to them. It's kind of like what we're doing here. <laughs> You're the audience, and I'm Koheleth. I'm the speaker. I am the gatherer. I have assembled you. Or Well, I mean, David's really assembled you, but you're here to hear this sermon that I'm going to deliver to you this weekend. That's what Kohelet means. Gatherer. Is this Solomon? Almost certainly it is. Almost certainly it is. He calls himself in that verse, the son of David in Jerusalem. That narrows it down quite a bit, doesn't it? Probably Solomon. Solomon's David's son. He reigned in Jerusalem. And we will see this later, but the writer of Ecclesiastes describes how he was wiser than all who came before him in Jerusalem. He also was very, 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 get the picture, wealthy. He was very wealthy. He was rich to the point that he could build large projects like gardens and parks and have numerous slaves and animals. We will see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 tomorrow morning. He didn't seem to be burdened by war. That's an interesting fact because almost every king in that day and really in history was entangled in war and conquest, but he was not. So he had all of this free time to build stuff and to think and do lots of thinking and philosophical pondering and experimentation. Whoever this is, and this is where like everybody lands, even if they don't think it's Solomon. Um, He's a Solomon wannabe. That's what they all say, basically. He's pretending to be Solomon. Now, the thing is, is that even though being a son of David makes us think like, well, that's got to be Solomon. There is this idea and this notion in scripture, it's very common that a son could refer to actually a grandson or a great grandson or a great-great-grandson, and so forth. I mean, Jesus is called the son of David, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He wasn't David's immediate son. David wasn't his immediate father. And there are many other instances in Scripture where son doesn't just mean that immediate son of that person. Rather, it can refer to sons several generations after the father, So maybe the author of Ecclesiastes is one of David's great, 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 great. Hopefully you're catching my reference there. See the Emperor's New Groove. And if you don't, then you need to watch that movie because it's one of the, it's probably the best Disney movie that ever came out. (laughs) Amen. Preach it. Uh, And you might be surprised to hear this, but most people in Christian circles actually believe Ecclesiastes was written by someone other than Solomon. Really? Most people believe it was someone who wasn't Solomon. I know some great godly people who take that view. I kind of scratch my head when I hear that, but you might be wondering, why does anybody take that view? Doesn't Solomon make the most sense? What's the big deal here? What are they getting all hung up on? Well, if you're thinking that doesn't make any sense to me, then good. You're right. Solomon does make the most sense. Except there's only one hurdle that these people usually can't get over. And it's once you start digging in and you start doing all the nerdy stuff. Then you start getting into all this stuff that's like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense to me. Why uh, could it really be Solomon after all? And then you hear all these liberal people that say that. I think it's important for you to understand this. So I'm going to bring, I'm going to talk about this a little bit and get into these weeds a little bit. But I think you can handle it. Follow along with me and there's slides to help you too. And that is that there are Hebrew words. Okay, you ready for this? There are Hebrew words and phrases that occur in Ecclesiastes that don't seem to appear in the Hebrew language until hundreds of years after Solomon is long dead and gone. Whoa, that's kind of weird. How would that have happened? How could those words be in there? Did somebody update the text? What's going on? So people think that maybe somebody... 500 years after Solomon must have written Ecclesiastes because we don't see words like that until much after Solomon is long dead and gone. It's kind of like if we somehow found phrases like, hey, that's cool in Jonathan Edwards' writings, okay? It's like, wait a minute, that sounds like a modern twist on Jonathan Edwards' vocabulary. If we found something like that in Jonathan Edwards' writings, we'd be like, "Uh, I don't think Jonathan Edwards wrote that. Someone either updated that or someone's a Jonathan Edwards wannabe, okay? They're pretending to be Jonathan Edwards, we can't do that with Ecclesiastes, can we? We can't do that. Because that would mean that somebody, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is pretending to be Solomon. That isn't, that's not good. That's hard to believe. That's borderline deceptive. That's deceptive. And it contradicts all that we know about Israel's history, too. I mean, no one came close to the wisdom of Solomon. No one came close to his wealth. Instead, you need to know this. Solomon certainly spoke Hebrew. You can see here, this is the map of Israel. He certainly spoke Hebrew as his first language. We don't have any reason to not believe that. But surrounding Israel, and this is really important, surrounding Israel during Solomon's day were many other languages during that time, including old versions of Aramaic and Greek, Ugaritic, and no, I didn't make that one up. It's not an alien language. It's not Wakandian, okay? (laughs) Persian, Phoenician, Akkadian, Egyptian, Babylonian. These are languages that were all occurring around the time of Solomon. In fact, scholars have carefully studied Ecclesiastes. And they've found many, many instances of borrowing terms from these languages like Aramaic. And a Phoenician and Egyptian and Greek and Babylonian and Persian. Literally all of those languages occur in Ecclesiastes in one form or another. And there's a really good reason for that. There's a really good reason for that. And we will see that more in a little bit when we talk about the when, the where, and the why. And I'm not the only one that believes this. Um, Dr. William Barrack. Dr. William barrick you probably, may, you may have heard his name before. You probably don't recognize him. Um. He knows 27 languages. He's still around. I just talked with him a few weeks ago at my brother's ordination service. So don't get into debate with this guy because he knows a lot. He's a professor or was, uh, I think he's mostly retired uh, at the Master seminary where some of us have gone or are going to. He claims in his commentary, he's got a really good commentary. It's kind of short. So it's actually a nice read. I would recommend picking it up even at your age. You could, you could pick up a lot from there. Uh, His commentary on Ecclesiastes is really good. And he takes this view that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes and he agrees with another old, highly respected Princeton scholar named Robert Wilson. And the reason why I bring up Robert Wilson is because I want to quote something from him and I'll put up on the screen here. Robert Wilson says, Solomon, being the wisest man of his time and a poet, an observer of nature and man, what's that? That's like a scientist, a botanist. Like Shakespeare, Milton, and Carlyle, men of linguistics. Those were men of great linguistics in the past. Shakespeare, I mean, we all know Shakespeare. Solomon, then, like those guys, would have a vocabulary much beyond the average. Much beyond the average. In other words, in his day, Solomon sat as king of the world. He did. Okay? He sat as king of the world, not just of Israel. He was the, they were part of the biggest nation during their time. It was like what the United States almost used to be. It's not quite that way anymore. Remember, he was the greatest king of all the kings of the earth. He was the richest. He was the wisest. Nations were doing business with Solomon because of how rich he was. The Queen of Sheba, remember her? She came to visit Solomon because of how wealthy and wise he was. You better believe then that Israel saw many different people groups come through their country during that time, speaking many different languages. They were coming from all the different nations and countries. If Dr. William Barrick today can know 27 languages... Then it's not hard to believe that Solomon in all of his genius also learned and spoke languages like Aramaic, Phoenician, Egyptian, Persian, Babylonian, and on and on and on. He probably was acquainted well with many of those languages. He's what we would call today a linguophile. Linguophile, someone who loves to study languages or a.k.a. a nerd. Okay, he was a nerd. But he was also really wealthy, probably like Elon Musk or something. I don't know. But uh, godly, well, kind of. All right. <laughs> and with all the connections and alliances that he made with other nations through his international dealings and through his numerous wives, more on that in a little bit, he certainly had a full palette of languages that he was exposed to. He definitely did. So to bring it all together... Solomon had a vocabulary that exceeded the Hebrew of his time. His borrowing of other languages in Ecclesiastes is not telling us, well, the book must have been written 500 years after him because that's when those words occur. No, it's telling us about Solomon's intelligence and international connections. In other words, he's using all these languages and he's bringing them into the Hebrew language. He's pioneering his own language. So cool. It's like the first of his kind. And there's there's a good reason for that. We'll see this in a little bit. And clearly Solomon was not only aware of these languages, he made much use of them. And Ecclesiastes is the book where he does this the most, more than any other writings that we have in scripture. Ecclesiastes is borrowing from tons of other languages, unlike, I mean, Proverbs does it some and Song of Songs, maybe a little bit, but this is the book where this really happens. And why? Why did he use them in Ecclesiastes more than any other of his writings? Well, it's really important to the background of the book, and you'll see this. I'm not going to give you the answer right yet, but you'll see this in a moment. But that's the who. That's the who. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote it. We don't need to doubt that. In fact, the language element that people get tripped up over is actually, I would say, proof of his authorship, not a negation of it. That's the who. Now the when. The when. When did Solomon write this book? Well, it was probably at the end of his life. Probably at the end of his life. And why do you say that, Jay? Why do you say at the end of his life? Because Solomon goes into great detail describing the experiments that he poured himself into. In Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, he indicates... The first two chapters, he indicates that he spent much of his life exploring and searching and experimenting. He also built many huge projects, such as literally forests. He created forests of trees, gardens, buildings, so forth. He also talks about old age in Ecclesiastes 12, as though he is one to understand what it is like to go through old age. And how difficult it is to remember God when you're living your final years of life in pain and suffering. In fact, Solomon's experiment throughout Ecclesiastes is very personal. As though he intentionally put himself in the shoes of every person in every stage of life. He can't really give the best advice unless he can put himself in the shoes of every single person. Which means he would have needed to have lived a full life before he could really write this. Because that's the case, it was necessary for Solomon to have been young and now old in order to give a full perspective of life. That's probably why he's old. And that's probably why it's the end of his life when he writes this book. Now we know that when Solomon was young, there was this innocence and godliness about his behavior. We know that, right? If you've heard... Uh, Sunday school uh, messages or sermons on the beginning of Solomon's life, you may remember how he insightfully asked God for wisdom in 1 Kings 3. By the way, actually, I say that, but you know the Hebrew actually doesn't say that he asked for wisdom? It doesn't say that. It's interesting. This is really important for what we're going to study in Ecclesiastes. He didn't ask for wisdom. He asked for what it says, a listening heart. A listening heart. That's really important. A listening heart. He asked that God would give him a heart that stops assuming that he's got all the answers. Instead, he wanted a heart that listens to God's word alone. That listens to God's word alone. It's a great start for a king. And that's why everything was going great at first. And even up until he built that first temple to Yahweh God. Yeah, you know, I'm not, this is, this is artist's rendition. It's not an actual picture, right? But this is perhaps what it may have looked like. And he has this amazing prayer in first Kings chapter eight. It's a long prayer. It's a long chapter that dedicates the temple in that prayer. And you know, the story, Solomon also loved many women. He married 700 women. That's an insane amount. Probably that those marriages were not just because he wanted it for his pleasure. Those marriages were the political alliances he made. That tells you how many nations he was connected to, seven, up to 700. It's incredible. That's how you know all these languages that he was interacting with. And he had 300 concubine women, and those were probably for his pleasure. Those women turned his heart away from Yahweh. They turned his heart. You hear that? They turned his heart away from Yahweh. Notice how he began by asking for a what kind of a heart? A listening heart. And then what did the women do? They what? Turned his heart away from Yahweh. And Deuteronomy 17 told him not to marry many women. Not to do that. And he disobeyed. And they want, they taught him to listen to them and not to God. So where does Ecclesiastes fit into all of this? Well, I would argue that his, actually his 300 concubines are the women that he speaks about in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 8. You can peek over there for a moment if you want. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 8. It's the second half of the verse there. It says, I provided for myself male singers and female singers and the delights of the sons of men. Literally, it says in Hebrew, concubine and concubines. That's just a a phrase to say, many, many concubines. Solomon's story in Ecclesiastes, in other words, is his life recounting of sin and experimentation. What you're going to read and hear about in Ecclesiastes is his recounting of his life of sin and experimentation. Experimentation. And he concluded it was all meaningless. It was all meaningless. That's why Ecclesiastes is his way. This is what I believe. This is Solomon's way of setting everything straight before he dies. He's getting his affairs in order before God, before he dies and before the world. Ecclesiastes is evidence, I think, of his repentance and his recognition of the vanity of all of it. Now, not all of the experimentation was necessarily bad, what what Solomon did. Yet, despite all the sin that was part of that experimentation that Solomon explored, which was not good, God cleverly orchestrated that experimentation to be just what the world needed at the moment from the mouth of the wisest man on the earth at that time. Wow. And more on that in a second, but that is the win. That is the win. That's the end of Solomon's life. And probably if you're a history buff, you want a date for that. That's probably between 940 BC and 932 BC. Now, the where? The where? Where was this book written? Well, that's probably pretty easy. Solomon mentions Jerusalem five times in the book. Ecclesiastes 1.1, 1.12, 1.16, 2.7, and 2.9. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, verse 12, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 7, and chapter 2, verse 9. In fact, besides the world Israel, that he mentions also in the book, there's really no other location that's really mentioned in the book. And so Solomon almost certainly wrote this in Israel, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the city, Israel being the country. And he ruled in Jerusalem, for his entire reign over Israel. this makes the most sense. But you're like, that's just a bunch of data. I know, that's true. But more important than the location of the writing of the book is the setting in which Solomon wrote it. This is one of the most critical parts. You might remember back in David's time, God made a covenant with David and it's called the what covenant? The The Davidic, good, you guys know it. The Davidic covenant is very powerful. Very powerful. To use another Lord of the Rings illustration, thank you, Dr. Abner Chow, it is ig- actually the one covenant to rule them all. The one covenant to rule them all. And those covenants that it was ruling were the covenants like Noah, Noah's covenant, right? Genesis 9 or Genesis 8 and 9. Abraham, Abraham's covenant, and the covenant to Israel at Sinai. It's the one covenant that rules all those covenants. What do you mean by that? Well, whoever can fulfill the Davidic covenant, whoever can fulfill it, can also bring to fulfillment all the other covenants. Very powerful. Very powerful covenant. In that covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, among other things, these are the things I wanted to bring out specifically. God promised David that he would have a son. David's going to have a son. Good. And he was going to do what? Well, he's going to build a temple. He's also going to unite the entire world. And then he's going to have a kingdom that lasts forever. Did Solomon's kingdom last forever? No. Uh Uh-oh. Why? Whose kingdom would last forever? Whose will? Jesus, yeah? But David didn't know that. And neither did Solomon. And Solomon actually built a temple for Yahweh God, didn't he? So he did fulfill part of that. Oh, excuse me. I got ahead of myself. Be there in just a second. And so David and Solomon rightly believed that Solomon could be the son who would unite the world and have a kingdom that lasted forever. If he built the temple, then... Maybe he's the guy who's going to unite the world. Maybe he's going to have a kingdom that'll last forever. Think about it this way. God designed the Davidic covenant to work like sports tryouts. You know how when you're trying out for sports, you're trying out for a position on the team, yeah? That's how it was for the position of God's Messiah. From a human perspective, obviously. Not from God's perspective, but from a human perspective. And God already knew who his Messiah was going to be. It's going to be Jesus. He knows that. But from a human point of view, Solomon was given the opportunity to try out for the position of the Messiah. That's how the Davidic covenant works, to see if he would succeed. And of course, he was going to fail. We know that now, but they didn't know that. And the opportunity needed to be legitimately presented to him in order for it to be a legitimate offer for that position. And you know the outcome, Solomon failed. And so did all of his sons after him, right? They all failed. Everyone tried out after Solomon, Rehoboam and so forth, right? All of his sons, until who came? Until another son of Solomon came, Jesus, yeah? So if Ecclesiastes is written toward the end of Solomon's life, then you must know that Solomon is already well aware at this point in his life, at the very end, I failed. I've failed. And not only that, but things are going to get worse for Israel and not better after I die. He knows that he's not going to unite the world in peace. Nope. His kingdom's not going to last forever. Nope. In fact, the world is going to turn against Israel even more now. And the kingdom, what's going to happen to the kingdom of Israel? What happened after Solomon dies? It splits. So because of that, Solomon writes Ecclesiastes to prepare Israel and all the nations of the world for the harsh reality that he has failed them. He's failed. That's Ecclesiastes. I failed. In other words, Ecclesiastes is really a sermon that's written down. It's like a sermon. To be spoken, get this, in every nation of the world. Spoken in their languages. Translated into Aramaic, Phoenician, Egyptian, Babylonian. All those languages that we saw. That Solomon is not the Messiah. Hard times are coming. And instead of world unity, war is coming. Distress, suffering, difficulty. And it makes sense that this is a letter Written to the world. And let me explain this even more. You know the personal name for God is Yahweh. These are the Hebrew letters for Yahweh. You're hearing that now more in the LSB Bible. So I feel like I can say this in a sermon. Pastor Steve, Pastor Darren, Pastor David, they're reading it from the pulpit week to week now. You're hearing Yahweh in the Bible. Yahweh occurs, get this, 6,828 times in the Old Testament. Ooh. Thank you, Logos Bible Software. That's what helped tabulate it for me. And besides simple words like and, and the, and perhaps a few other words like with or to, Yahweh is the most common Old Testament word. Whoa. It's fascinating, though, that Yahweh doesn't appear in Ecclesiastes. Did you know that? The name Yahweh doesn't appear in Ecclesiastes at all. Not once. The only term that's used for God in the book is God. That's the only term that's used. It's the Hebrew term Elohim. You may have heard of that before. And what's even more interesting is that Ecclesiastes never mentions any prior divine revelation. You're like, what do you mean by that? Uh, it. It doesn't, I basically mean, Solomon doesn't quote or even allude to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel. Solomon never mentions or quotes from any other books of the Bible, which is kind of rare in the Old Testament. He doesn't pick up on any promises from God, none of the covenants, nothing. It's bizarre because Ecclesiastes is a book all about the true meaning of life, yeah? Wouldn't you expect that someone addressing the true meaning of life would actually talk a lot about what God had to say previously about it, yeah? Wouldn't you expect that? He should be quoting lots of Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Life is meaningless, ah, but if you remember when God promised that there will be a nation, Israel, that will bring forth a hope a message of hope of life to the world. He doesn't do any of that. None of that. No prophecy, no law of Moses. no promises from God, no Yahweh, no Old Testament quotes, nothing. He's completely silent. Why do I mention all of these things? Because you need to understand that Solomon is probably not first and foremost writing to Israel. He's writing to the world. That is a really important point. He is writing to the entire world. He's coming to the world on their common ground. Their common ground. What do you mean by that? He's starting from their starting point. The world in his day was not convinced that Yahweh God is the true God. So Solomon writes Ecclesiastes to them, appealing to them to consider life without any reference to his God, Yahweh God. He doesn't start there. Let me illustrate this to kind of help you. I know some of you have seen the best cartoon TV series ever, Phineas and Ferb. And there's an episode where Phineas and Ferb, and by the way, Phineas and Ferb, they are these two young brothers who can inconceivably build these enormous projects in their backyard, uh, like roller coasters and buildings and so forth, all in like one summer's afternoon. Uh, and there's this one episode where they want to uh, raise awareness for the fact that that little plastic piece at the end of your shoelace is called, uh, do you guys know what it is? Agla. An agla, <laughs> you guys know it. <laughs> It's such a clever episode. It's it's one of the best ones. Uh, but they do this whole musical number in the episode with this huge stadium of people, and they're singing this really catchy song. It's really fun, you know. A G L E T, don't forget it, right? And over and over again, they're singing this A G L E T, don't forget it. And every episode, their older sister Candice. Whose life goal is to bust Phineas and Ferb and get them into huge trouble with their mom, but never seems to be able to do that. She's invited to sing with them up on stage, okay? And this is like her big moment, so she's actually kind of kind of getting sucked into this thing. And when it comes time for her solo, right in front of everyone, like all the lights go out and like this spotlight goes on her. There's this soft guitar playing, and she's you know singing this uh, this bridge that she's going to build back into the the chorus. And so everything's focusing on her, and then her lines go. And in the end, the most important thing is that we never forget that the end of a shoelace is called a, uh, uh, wait a minute, hold on, it doesn't matter. I can't even believe I got sucked into this thing. And Phineas is like, I can't even believe you still haven't learned the word. I mean, we spelled it a bunch of times in the song. (laughs) And the whole point of the song is this word called aglet. Aglet. And you never forget it. That's the whole point. A-G-L-E-T. Don't forget it. And the one time that it's not mentioned in the song, where Candace is supposed to say it and she doesn't mention it, that's probably the most memorable time of the song of all, isn't it? And you're like trying to fill in the blanks. Like, ha, ha, That's that's what it is. And as silly as that sounds, that's what Solomon's doing in Ecclesiastes. By not mentioning Yahweh, he purposefully leaves out Yahweh, Yahweh's promises, Yahweh's Old Testament, so that he would help everyone see how meaningless life is without them. By not mentioning Yahweh, Ecclesiastes is screaming Yahweh more loudly than almost any other book of the Bible. And that's why Yahweh's name doesn't appear in the book. That's why Solomon doesn't quote any Old Testament text or mention any promise or command from God to Israel. He doesn't mention any of those. This book for Solomon starts the conversation on the world's turf and then brings them along in their thinking leading them to Yahweh. That's what he's doing. When you evangelize a Catholic, it's much different than when you evangelize an atheist. I found a picture of a millennial, basically. (laughs) It's like, basically an atheist. Um, And when you talk with a Catholic, you can use biblical terms to talk with them, can't you? You can. You can talk with a Catholic about Jesus, can't you? Uh, You can talk about faith. You can talk about godliness. Catholics will understand you when you use that terminology. But when you talk with someone who doesn't believe in God, like an atheist, you can't always start by talking about Jesus or talking about godliness or the Holy Spirit. You could. I mean, it's, it's not like it's bad. You can. But the atheist won't necessarily accept those things as true right away you have to start back further than that a lot of times you must start perhaps at the point of creation and help them to see the creation around them is leading them to admit that creation doesn't make sense without god's existence you can't move forward in the conversation until the atheist can at least acknowledge that simple truth and so also solomon addresses the world at their starting point he addresses them at their starting point the world at that time believed that God existed. So Solomon doesn't avoid God immediately in his, in Ecclesiastes. He, he starts right out with God. Everyone basically believed in a God in that era, but which God was true, all the nations disagreed about that and what God was up to. They all disagreed about that. And so Solomon approaches his Ecclesiastes sermon without naming his God Yahweh so that he can bring them along to accept that his conclusions about God are very reasonable. And even a pagan can agree with what Solomon is concluding concluding about this. And specifically, this is what's so cool. He targets a young generation like you. And we will see that throughout the book. And why does he do that? Because he wants to warn the next generation of the things to come. There's hardship coming in the world. That's what he's saying. There's hardship coming. And I want to warn not just this generation. I want to warn the next generation. That's why this book is so applicable and likely intriguing for you. I mean, it might even be your favorite book of the Bible. Because it was... This makes sense because it was written mostly to young Gentile people like you. Solomon had people like you in mind when he was writing this. And that's the where. That's the setting. Now, I know we're like, we're almost done here. Are you going to get through the rest of this? Yes. This will go really fast here at the end. The why. The why is where we're going next here. And with the brief time, we're going to just address this why and this how. And this should go really quick because... Now we understand the whole purpose for really why Solomon would write this book. Solomon writes Ecclesiastes as a recounting of how he thoroughly experimented with everything in life to see if he can find full meaning in wisdom. In his pursuits, and since Solomon was the wisest and the richest and the most powerful man of his day, and perhaps the wisest and richest and most powerful in history, he was the most qualified to do this. That's what makes him the most qualified to do this. But he concluded, after laying aside every promise that he knew from Yahweh God, that everything is meaningless without Yahweh God and without his promises. So Solomon writes this sermon, easily translated into other languages, to be spoken on every street corner, to make clear that seeking for meaning in life without any communication from God, it is meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless. He's basically saying, don't try to find meaning in intelligence, wealth, power, or pleasures in this world Without any kind of communication that comes from God. Because I already tried that for you. And it's meaningless. It leads to nothing. I can't find the full answer on my own, he says. I can't find that perfect answer that explains everything. I can't find that perfect pleasure that satisfies the soul for good. It only delights for a moment and then it fails. And more so... Now that Solomon, now it's clear that Solomon is not qualified to unite the world. And so since that's true, then the kingdom is also not going to be firmly established in Solomon's lifetime. And so Solomon is warning the world and Israel that hard times are coming. And he is not the Messiah. And the kicker is. And all of this is that Solomon urges us to wait for God's next move. It's almost like when you're playing chess with someone and you're just waiting for your, the person you're playing against to make the next move. And he's taking a long time. <laughs> like, would you move? Make your move. That's Solomon saying, yeah, you got to wait. What is God going to do now that the kingdom is not going to stay like we thought? Solomon's not the guy. The world is now going to turn against Israel. What's going to happen next? And what it's doing is it's preparing us. This is so cool. But it's preparing us for the prophets. That's what Ecclesiastes does. It actually prepares us for books like Isaiah, Obadiah, Micah, Joel, Amos, Nahum, Habakkuk. In other words... In Ecclesiastes, Solomon is saying to Israel and to the world, fear God, wait for his next revelation, and make sure you listen to it and obey it when it comes. That's the why. That's the why. And now, we'll wrap up here with the how. The how. How does Solomon communicate in Ecclesiastes, and how does he structure what he says? And there are a lot of themes that we will see as we walk through the book over the next few sessions together. It's really interesting, but you will see that Solomon uses a lot of terminology that is scientific-like. Some of you may really enjoy science. Maybe one of your favorite subjects in school. Solomon is a scientist. He is a scientist. One of the best of his day. He experimented. And I will point out these terms of Scientific terminology when we come across them in the text. You also see this word a lot vanity. Vanity. That's Solomon's conclusion to everything. It's vain, it's empty, meaningless, but don't mistake in this word for sin. Vanity does not equal sin in this case. It's not what Solomon's saying. It could have been started, or you could reach vanity because of sin. But it is not equal to sin. The better idea of vanity is temporary. It's temporary. It's here for a moment and then poof, it's gone. You also see this terminology chasing after the wind. Chasing after the wind. (laughs) How pointless it is to chase after the wind. Um, First, you can't catch the wind. (laughs) You're like, well, technically today... We have these turbines that catch, don't get into that. But, okay, even if you could catch the wind, what's the point of that just on a personal level, right? That's the whole point. It's like, what are you doing? Why are you trying to chase after the wind? Life is like that for Solomon. Labor. Labor. Labor is the hard, exhausting work that we will see in Ecclesiastes. He poured himself into his experiments and he exhausted himself almost to death to build all of his projects and assemble all of his wisdom. And he was incredibly overwhelmed at the end, physically and mentally. There's also this word under the sun, under the sun. It's a term you're going to hear a lot. Now you need to understand under the sun because you'll hear a lot and can be misunderstood. And it really helps us to frame the book. Well, whenever you hear under the sun, you need to think of this. Solomon's saying, "Only that which I can see, hear, taste, smell, and touch." And you're like, that's the five senses. Exactly, that's what under the sun is. Anything I can see, hear, taste, smell, and touch. In other words, is anything that's material in this life. Anything that's material, or technical word, empirical. Empirical, that's the technical scientific word for anything that you can basically observe scientifically. Solomon's saying, I did that. And only observing life in front of us, not factoring in in the Bible, not factoring in faith, not factoring in believing God's promises, that's life under the sun. Then he has this word heart that occurs a lot. Solomon is teaching you to have the right kind of heart. The right kind of heart. Which makes sense, right? Because he asked for the right kind of heart at the beginning, and then what? The the women turned his heart away from God. And then this term, circles. uh, It's not really a term, actually. It's more of a concept that you'll see a lot. You're going to hear a lot of things going in circles in this book. A lot of things going in circles. And uh, I have a lot to say on that in the next few sermons. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. Also... This, on, this concept of nothing new. Nothing's new. Solomon mentions at some critical points that there's nothing new in this world. Everything's going in circles. It's all happened before. It's the same thing that's happened. It might be like a little bit of a newer version, but it's not really new. It's not really satisfying. It's not something that's like, whoa, that's out of the, that's, that blows my mind. That, that totally breaks all the rules. There's nothing new. Life after death. Oh, this is a great theme in Ecclesiastes. This is a mystery for Solomon in many ways. It's a mystery. As he thinks about life without factoring in any of his knowledge of the Old Testament and Scripture and what will happen to him after he dies. And then, what is God up to? Which is probably the most concerning question for Solomon. He's trying to figure out God's pattern. What is God doing so he can predict what God will do next? And Solomon concludes, I can't predict what God is doing. I don't know what the pattern is. I can't find out from my own observation. And so finally, finally, those are all the themes. Let's look at just really quickly the structure. Solomon comes to six big conclusions in the book, and we will pick up on these starting tomorrow morning. Six big conclusions. And these conclusions are, you can find them whenever he says, eat, drink, and enjoy. Then you know he's reached a big conclusion. Eat, drink, and Enjoy except for the last conclusion. He doesn't really say the eat and the drink part, but he does say the enjoy part. And there's, I think there's a good reason for that. Um, And also Solomon mentions five instances in which he calls upon his audience to fear God. This is probably the most succinct theme that you will see in Ecclesiastes, fear God. It'll be the driving force and the lesson that you have to pull away from this book and you have to understand what it means. And it may be different than what you may be thinking it means. So we will talk about that more in the coming session. So what do we cover tonight? We've covered the who, the when, the where, the why, and the how. And the who, the when, and the where. Solomon wrote this book toward the end of his life in Jerusalem. As the kingdom of Israel is about ready to split, and everyone's going to be turning against Israel, the kingdom is not coming anymore, at least not in Solomon's day. Solomon is not the Messiah. And so why would he write this book then? Well, with this sermon sermon of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is preparing the world for this coming disaster that's coming on the world. And he's approaching them from their starting points by relating his experience of seeking wisdom in life without revelation from Yahweh, God. And he concluded that it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. And we must be ready for God's next move and God's next words specifically. What is God going to do next? What is God going to say next? Solomon's answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Which is why I need to fear him and wait for him to speak. Solomon is preparing Israel and the world for the ministry of the prophets. And then, of course, how? How does Solomon communicate this? He does this by relating scientific-like empirical experiments where he observed the cyclical nature of life. Nothing's new. Everything's temporary. This led him to conclude, if possible, life should be enjoyed, and fearing God is the only option for mankind. This is the kind of wisdom that explores the deepest questions of life. This is the kind of wisdom that only, we'll see, the gospel can answer. This is the unexpected wisdom from Solomon that we're going to explore in the next couple of days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for such a, a deep and wise book like Ecclesiastes that helps us to know what questions to ask. And though not all the revelation was there for Solomon to reach the final conclusion, we have answers. And we will be talking about those more this coming weekend. Help us, Lord, to be attentive and to hear what those answers are. Help prepare the hearts of these students. Because even if we give all the answers, the important thing right now is for the students to ask the right questions. And Lord God, I pray that that will be true, that you would spark that in each student's heart to be asking those questions in their own hearts, that they would crave to know the answers and that they would look to you for those answers. And I pray that it would be clear this weekend what those answers are. And Lord God, please bless our time as we learn these things and worship you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.